There are several studies that have shown that there is one factor, one factor that contributes more than any other to the spiritual growth and development of the believer. So if I told you that there was one thing, one key factor that contributes to the spiritual growth and development of the believer, I want you to think for a second, what do you think that factor would be? Just kind of think, if there's one thing that was most important in my life for me to keep growing as a believer, what would that one important factor be? Well, one of the studies that uh, has been developed in the last uh, 20 years, one study stated that nothing else even comes close to having the same impact as the Bible when it comes to spiritual growth. When it comes to someone growing from someone who's interested in God, interested in Christ, growing into someone who's becoming more mature in their faith, growing into someone who is a faithful, fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ, that there is no single factor that bears more weight on that growth and on that maturation than someone availing themselves to Scripture. So it was seen that people who maybe hear the Bible taught on the weekend or hear it taught every now and then, that they would have some semblance of spiritual ideologies, but then when they would step into another level of on their own volition, getting into the Word of God um, every now and then, that that contributed to them growing and maturing in their faith some. And then when someone went from that stage into studying and thinking about Scripture regularly, multiple times a week, that there was significant leaps and bounds of growth in those individuals as mature believers. And then when they got to reading, studying, meditating on Scripture daily, that that was where they found that people were most spiritually mature. And so, why is it that we as a church want to teach through books of the Bible. That's why. Why is it that we went through Philippians recently? Why is it that we're about to go through Ephesians? And why is it that honestly, as long as I'm in leadership, we're going to keep on majoritively going through books of the Bible like this? Is because God blesses the reading and the teaching of his word and the Holy Spirit works through his word to bring about transformation in the hearts of his people. The Holy Spirit who inspired the authors to write what they wrote is the same exact Holy Spirit who opens our eyes at the hearing and receiving of the words. Why, why scripture teaches that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, meaning that as we hear the word of God, that God gives us faith and our eyes are open to the truth. So as we've said that, uh, we're going into Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 today. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll get into some, some historical context in a moment. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul spent more time in the city of Ephesus with that church than he spent anywhere else in his ministry of the gospel. He was with the Ephesians for three years, we would see in the book of Acts. He wasn't at any other church 
that long. So, so Paul had an intimate relationship with these guys. He knew them all really, really well. Um, and he was very, very acquainted with their world, with their circumstances, with their situations. And as we go into the book of Ephesians, there's a couple of historical things that are really important that we know and understand in order to properly interpret this book. Paul was battling a very popular and rampant theology and philosophy and ideology in that day and in that region called Gnosticism. You cannot properly understand the book of Colossians. You can't properly understand the book of Ephesians. You can't properly understand the book of 1 John if you don't understand somewhat of this ancient philosophy and theology called Gnosticism. So what is Gnosticism that was prevalent in that day or growing and rising in popularity? Gnosticism, they believed in dualistic realities, that there was spirit and that there was matter. And this really comes from the Greek philosophy of that day, the Greek philosophy and theology that was popular in that day and in that region, that there was spirit, which was good, and there was matter, which was evil. And they believed in these two gods, or the, these two paradigms of God, moreover, that there was a, a, a highest perfect God that was good called the monad, and then there was a lower evil God who created the material world uh, called the Demiurge. And so they believed that there was this good and perfect God, the monad, and he was spirit because they believed that spirit is good and material is bad. They believed this Demiurge that created the material world was so far removed from that higher perfect God that he was capable of forming material, forming matter, and creating the world that we know today. And they believed that this Demiurge was evil because, well, the world is messed up. And they would conclude, if the world is this messed up, then the God who made this world must be messed up. But there's also got to be goodness, and there's got to be a good and perfect God. And so they, they taught that there was this perfect God that was high, high up, that there were levels of angelic realities, and they also uh, believed that there were passwords that you could use to get through those realities. So they had a dualistic theology, um, and that, again, the material is bad, the spirit is good. Um, another thing uh, that they, well, that was dualistic realities. The, they also had a dualistic theology, which was the monad and the demiurge. And then also, uh, uh, this uh, Gnosticism was highly and extremely internalistic. They would teach and believe the answers are not in something outside yourself. The answers are internal within your spirit that if you can detach yourself from the evil material self and tune and dial into the inner spiritual being, then that's where you find your answers. If you can only look within yourself, and that sounds pretty familiar today, doesn't it? that the answers are in you, that if you can just simply look inside yourself and figure out who you are, then you will feel enlightened and you will find your place in this world. And if you can come convicted in who you are internally within yourself, this is a rebranding of Gnosticism from the day of Scripture. This internalistic idea that you already are, you already have, you simply need to learn to connect with your inner self. Another dynamic of Gnosticism of the day was secret knowledge. This gnosis, the Greek word that means knowledge, the secret uh, knowledge is where we get the word Gnosticism. 
uh, that there is this mystery that is to be known and to be tapped into, and that there, again, are these secret spiritual words that you can use. They believe that they knew the passwords to get through these tiers and these levels of the spirit realm, these angelic levels, and that if they knew all the right combinations and knew these mysteries, then they could get to the level of this perfect God and achieve this spiritual wholeness and detach themselves from their evil material selves. This is also, um, you might have heard of the Gnostic Gospels. If you've seen the Da Vinci Code, that's where that stuff came from. These Gnostic Gospels that were written like the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas. And these are books that were written around the same era or a little bit after some of what we have canonized as scripture like Ephesians and the other Gospels. But the church, under the sovereign guidance of the Lord, rejected those letters because if you read them and you have the Holy Spirit of God in you, you can feel and discern these are of a different spirit. They're not in agreement with the Holy Spirit that wrote and authored the scriptures as we have and know them today. The, the Gospel of Judas even teaches that Judas, we all know is the guy who betrayed Jesus, teaches that Judas had this secret insight from Jesus that one time Jesus pulled him aside and said, Jesus or Judas, I'm going to tell you what I'm really up to. I'm going to tell you about my secret mission, my secret plan. Only you're going to know. I'm not going to tell my other disciples. And that's what led Judas into betraying Jesus the way that he did. This is heresy. Not scared to say it. That's heresy. And so we need to be very careful, very guarded about this because we might think, oh, wow, that's crazy stuff that they were interested in and dealing with and, and wrestling with back then. I'm glad we're past that. We're not. The same root of these ideologies and the same root of these philosophies and theologies and all the E's, all these things are still here today, rebranded, repackaged. There are very, very popular teachers and philosophers in this world who are still teaching this same stuff today. And so that's the context to which Paul writes this letter that we call Ephesians. As he knew from several of the cities that he went to, that this Gnosticism, which was them trying to make Christianity relevant to the Greek theology, which danger, danger, we don't need to make scripture relevant. It is relevant because it is the divinely inspired word of God. It was relevant back then, it's relevant to us today. And so I don't need to stand up here and make the Bible relevant to you. It is relevant because it's the authoritative inspired word of God. And this is the error that grew into Gnosticism is going, well, we're in this area and in this region where there's philosophies and ideologies of a good spirit and bad matter. And so let's mix it in with Christianity. And there was a lot of deception that came in to where Jesus was not fully God and fully man, that he was fully God, but he wasn't fully man, which is dangerous because if you believe that God, Jesus was fully God and not fully man, well, then he couldn't be your substitute on the cross if he wasn't fully man. Also, 1 John goes on to tell us that anyone who doesn't believe that, that Jesus is fully God and fully man has the spirit of antichrist in them. So this is not some small matter. This is not a minor, secondary, tertiary issue. This is foundational and very, very important. And we need to be aware of that today in the day and age that we live in. So this, Paul, uh, this letter that Paul wrote, the earliest manuscripts that we have of the letter of Ephesians 
If you have a study Bible, it might have a footnote on this first verse where it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Well, the earliest manuscripts that we have, meaning the handwritten copies of Scripture, the earliest manuscripts don't say at Ephesus. In fact, there's a grammatically cumbersome and weird blank there uh, that, that, that is kind of confusing, that is inferring that there should be a name there, but the oldest manuscripts don't have that. Well, then, well, what does that mean? Well, let's look at a few other things. That that blank right there, that it didn't say at Ephesus, in the cumbersome Greek that doesn't really flow, making sense, um, that there was probably a blank there. What probably happened was that Paul knew that this Gnosticism was spreading, and he did one of two things. Tychicus, who we can see in chapter 6, is the guy who delivered this letter and gave Paul's updates to the church in Asia and to this region, that as he delivered that letter, it's probable that Paul either, one, wrote this letter in multiple copies and left a blank there so that Tychicus could go to all these churches and give them this letter and they could fill in the blank with their name. Or that he wrote one letter and as Tychicus went around to all these different churches, he would say, uh, as he would read it, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Laodicea. Paul, an, Ephes uh, an apostle by Christ Jesus by the will of God to all the saints who are in Pergamum and all these different cities that he would fill in the blank to whom he was reading. Well, wait a minute. Then why do we call this Ephesians? Why is this the letter we call uh, Paul's letter to Ephesus? Well, one, most manuscripts that do have names, well, not most, all the manuscripts that do have a name in there say Ephesus. So that's one reason. Two, Ephesus was the dominant church in the region of Asia. It was in the city that was the metropolitan epicenter of the province of Asia Minor. And so this was the most influential church in the entire region. That's also possibly why it's called the letter to Ephesus, but also because we see that name in the manuscripts that do have that name. So, all of that to say, that's some of the background and history and context that's kind of important for us to know and understand that Paul recognized this cancerous theology of Gnosticism is spreading throughout the region, and I need to send ahead or send to answer some gospel truth that's going to combat those things so people aren't deceived. And then you would see, actually, in this letter, Paul challenges them at one point to stand against false teaching. And then we could also go to Revelation, the letters that were written to the seven churches of Asia, one of them being Ephesus. Jesus says of the church of Asia, it's known of you that you stand against false teachers. So this is a church that this letter worked for. They hear this letter, they, they learn and discern the truth, and they, they, they object the false teachers of that day. So having said that, once again, Ephesians 1, verse 1 says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of things to point out and notice there first. Paul, an apostle. Notice in almost every letter that Paul wrote, he opens it by saying, I, Paul, an apostle. For us, we need to recognize that him saying that to them was him saying, I'm Paul an authoritative messenger on behalf of God writing to you. This is what he's saying is that I've got authority from God to write to you what I'm writing to you, to say to you what I'm saying to you. And what we would see throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, 
is that Paul's letters and his writing were quickly received as inspired scripture. This is one of the things that Peter said about Paul's writing. Talked about it as scripture, and then he would go on to say, man, some of the stuff that Paul writes is hard to understand. And this was in the same context of him calling it scripture. So Paul is saying, just before we get into this stuff, remember, I have authority from God as an apostle to tell you these things. And it's by the will of God. To the saints, and we have at Ephesus that are faithful in Christ Jesus, and then he goes to his standard greeting that he wrote to every single church. Grace and peace to you. And man, how easy is it for us to read that and just go, oh yeah, he says that every time. Yeah, yeah, we get it. Paul an apostle, grace and peace to you. We need to stop and recognize that it's significant that Paul did not write letters without opening with this gospel truth of grace and peace to you. That before we get into the contents of this message, I want to make sure and declare that my greeting to you is the grace of God which leads to peace with God. This free gift, charis, the Greek word there, is the free unmerited gift from God. And before we get into the contents, grace to you and this grace from God brings peace with God. Not that you're laboring and working to be accepted by God, but that there is grace in God giving to you that you're accepted by God and therefore we have peace with God. Now, as we get into verses 3 through 14, which is where we're going to get today. In the original Greek, this is one long run-on sentence. 11 verses, one sentence in the original Greek. So I'm going to read through it that way. I'm going to read through three, verses 3 through 14, and then we'll go back and, and dissect some of it. So verse 3, he says this. Remember who he's writing to, these Gnostics he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having, predest or having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. Our grammar teachers would be marking this all up, going, this should be multiple sentences, Paul. But Paul rolls into... This beautiful doxology, this praise of the glory of God. Now remember, 
He's writing to a culture who is having Gnosticism pressed into them, Gnosticism thrown at them, this idea that there is a good and perfect God, that there is a lower material God who created this world. Many then began teaching that this was the Yahweh of the Bible. And so Paul is combating them with this praise of rich theological truth just starting to knock holes in all those ideas that Gnosticism was bringing in. Did you hear all the key words in there? Did you hear the things that he said in light of this Gnostic ideology? Let's look at it a little closer. Verse 3. That blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So as Gnosticism comes in, and they're saying, if you want blessings, if you want fulfillment, if you want the answers, look within yourself and get connected to the spiritual realm. And Paul is saying, no, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, not in yourself. He's saying in Christ, God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing, everything that you need, God has given you in Christ. See, God has already given us everything we need in Christ. And today, this mantra, this philosophy and ideology telling us, just look within. Find who your true self is. Be true to yourself, to your feelings. What you want and your desires and your hungers, be true to yourself. In chapter 2, Paul's going to say, hey, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and because of that, we, just like all the rest of mankind, follow the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. That's what happens when you buy into this idea that the answers are within. That if you just look within yourself and if you be true to who you are, well, then you'll find your place. You'll find your meaning. You'll find your strength in this glorious, beautiful exaltation that's deceptive of ourself. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Every spiritual blessing that you're longing for is found in Christ and in him alone. He would go on to say in verse 4, even as he chose us in him. Well, before we get that, I want to point out one more thing as we're in this in Christ conversation. Notice how much in Christ is in these verses. Remember, the Gnostics are trying to say, look within yourself, find the answers within yourself, I want you to pay attention now as we breeze through this passage again. I'm going to read it one more time, and I want you to notice, in Christ, in him, in the beloved. Watch this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice your beloved is capitalized. It's talking about Jesus. It's not talking about the beloved believers. It's talking about Jesus. So in the beloved. Here we go, verse 7. Here it is. In him. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth with in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here we go again, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope, what? In Christ might be the praise, might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, what's it say? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed what? In him. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Imagine someone came to you and was telling you the answers are in you. Look within yourself. Look within your spirit and get connected to the spiritual realm. And then you read this letter where Paul goes, nope, in Christ, in Christ, in him, in him, in the beloved, in Christ, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him. Not in yourself. The prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament said, the heart is deceptive above all things. See, when we buy into the popular ideology of today of just follow your inner self, follow your heart, follow your feelings, be true to yourself, Jeremiah is saying, guys, danger. Your heart is deceptive. Your heart will lead you astray. Why? Because your heart's dead in sin. That's what we get to in chapter two, that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And then Paul goes on again to say that we by nature, as children of wrath like the rest of mankind, followed the passions and desires of the body and the mind. This is what happens when we live out of who we are dead in sin, which is why we must subject ourselves and kneel to the Jesus Christ who is the savior of mankind, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us all that we need in him. Not within ourselves. Stop believing the lie that the answers are simply within you, realizing who you are and embracing that. You need to confront and realize who you are outside of Christ is dead in sin. And that dead in sin person drives you to love and want and act upon sinful desires. And as long as you're following that person within yourself, you will be led into destruction. Because that's from the destruction we were born in, the destruction we live in, the destruction that we embrace and love and hunger and desire. Unless we are in Christ. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse, says, verse 7 says, if any man is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all has become new. Meaning those old sinful, hungry appetites for the flesh and for evil. He's saying the evil is not in material. It's actually within us. That place that the Gnostics are trying to tell you is the answer, that's actually where the evil is. In your spiritually dead self, which that's Ephesians chapter 2, where we will get um, soon. <laughs> Having said, you chuckle because you know how I do. Okay. I want to point out again how this is prevalent today. And I just want to, some people say you shouldn't call out names, you shouldn't name names. And I just want to point out that Paul did it. 
that there are several teachers, false teachers in the, Old, in, in the New Testament that we know of where Paul um, called out these people by name and said they're false teachers. And so I'm not doing that today except for there's one very popular preacher, if you want to call him that, um, a man named Richard Rohr. If someone brings Richard Rohr content and material to you, run, run, run. It is modern Gnosticism. It is this spiritual, we are all Christ's. And I'll show you a quote from one of his followers and disciples who used to be a Christian, a man named Michael Gunger, who used to be a Christian worship leader, who has now embraced this Gnosticism. One day, uh, Michael Gunger tweeted, Jesus was Christ. Buddha was Christ. Muhammad was Christ. Christ is a word for the universe seeing itself. Hmm. I wonder if the Greek authors thought that Christ was a word for the universe seeing itself. No, they didn't. You are Christ. We are the body of Christ. And if you went and looked at all of his tweets, you would see a whole lot of nonsense like that. Deception, teaching you, all roads lead to God. We are all Christ. And if we can all tap into that, that's why this is not something that just mattered to the church that day. Guys, it's here today and now. And we need to be aware of it. We need to let Ephesians make us sensitive to it. That when we hear these ideas being pushed, we go, whoa, 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 whoa. That doesn't sound like the one Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life who said, no man comes to the Father but by me. And so either you have to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, or you have to do what the Gnostics of this day did, and you say, oh, well, that message doesn't jive really well with Greek thinkers so let's figure out a way where we can make them work together. Let's tweak this message some and say, you know what? Maybe all of us are spiritual and all of us are Christ and all of us have this. Christ is a word for the universe seeing itself. Run when you hear those ideologies. Again, God has already given us everything that we need in Christ. And it is lies from the deceptive enemy who wants us to think that the answers can be found outside of Christ and can be found within ourselves and all of that. Now, at Word of Grace, we have, a value, we have seven core values. One of those values out on the wall out there is that we are willing to give up what we believe for the truth because Scripture defines truth, not our ideas. This is a question of what do you believe about the Bible? Do you believe the Bible is inspired by God like it says it is? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit motivated the thoughts, intentions, and even words of the authors, that therefore it is a human uh, book and a divine book in that God orchestrated their motives, orchestrated their intents, orchestrated their words? If you do, which gives you the, the position of believing and the authority of Scripture, that it has authority over our lives, then we need to kneel before Scripture and go, I've got to be willing to give up what I believe for the truth. And if what I believe doesn't agree with Scripture, then which party's wrong? It's me. And so we need to wrestle with those things. And I say that because we're about to wander into something in Ephesians that's difficult to understand and kind of challenging, okay? Verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he blessed us in the beloved. Wait a minute. Predestination. Oh boy, here we go. Here's the fun conversation, the fun topic. If you read this passage in its proper context, because a lot of people, everybody, when you read scripture, you have to at least acknowledge, okay, God chose me. God chose us. You can't read scripture and not get there. But what many do is say that God chose us by looking into the corridors of time and seeing that we would choose him, and therefore, he chose us. The challenge of that, the problem with that, is that is not what Scripture is saying here in context. In fact, Paul doesn't just say it once. He doubles down on it, and then he triples down on it. He says it three times in this passage here that God chose us. And if we went to John chapter 16, where Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's talking to his disciples, he says to them, hey, guys, you did not choose me. I chose you. If you went to John chapter 6, you would see where Jesus is talking to this massive crowd, and he says, no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. He would also say, I will not lose any one of whom the Father has given me. And so this, this for us, puts us in some internal conflict where we start going, wait, wait, what? God chose me. What we can see clearly here in Scripture is that God chose us before the foundation of the world, that he predestined us to adoption. And then what's the question that comes? Well, what about free will? That's the question that always comes up from this passage, from Romans 9, from John 6, from Genesis, the account of Esau and Jacob, from Exodus, the account of Pharaoh and the hardening of of Pharaoh's heart. These are the wrestles that people start having, and they go, "Well, well, well, yeah, God chose us because he knew we would choose him. And you can make that case if you want to, but I don't think the biblical authors make that case. I don't think that there would be so much emphasis put on God's choosing without the mentioning of him seeing that we would choose him. There's so much emphasis right here in Ephesians and in Romans and in so many places in Scripture. But what does that do about our free will? Don't violate my free will. This is where we wrestle and struggle. And notice, I want to point out something here. It says that he predestined us to adoption as sons in Christ Jesus. I have four adopted little sisters. I have four little sisters that my family, we adopted from Romania a long time ago. And they were in poverty. They were in orphanages that were, uh, they were poor. Um, They had one outfit. They had one pair of shoes. Many of them didn't even have shoes. Um, You got to eat if you were one of the stronger kids because you would bully the other kids and take their food. These are the contexts that my sisters were living in. And I went with my dad to Romania 16 years ago on one trip. And so I've seen this firsthand. I know what I'm talking about. And I have the four adopted little sisters. Now, to those little girls in those circumstances, when you come in and you say, I choose you for adoption to bring you into my family, never once do they say, now wait a minute, you're violating my free will. No, you know what they say? I've been chosen. I'm getting out of here. Someone love me. I've been chosen. This is the heart of the Father that wants to be seen in these passages. The heart here 
is not this who's allowed in and who's not allowed. The heart here is that we would see, I was dead in my sin. Condemned to separation from the Father. And he chose me. And he adopted me. To the praise of his glorious grace. That we would see the Father who chose us. Out of the orphanage of sin and death. We go, thank you. Thank you. Can this be true? So, I would encourage you, as we struggle and wrestle with these ideas, how can this true? Yes, we still have free will. The problem is, in that, is that until you are made new, your will is broken. And you don't want to come to God. This is why Romans 3 says that no man seeks righteousness. None is good. No, not one. No man wants God. No man wants righteousness. Our will is broken, degenerate in sin and in death. But God looks in our orphanage of sin and death and says, you're in my family now. And we say, thank you. Thank you to the praise of of his glorious grace. Well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm, if I'm chosen? Wait, 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 what, what if I'm not? Listen, if you're curious, if you're wondering, if you're wrestling, you are. If you desire it, you are. So the, the, what we need to ask ourselves is, why did the Apostle Paul think it was so important to teach these things? When you're practicing hermeneutics, which is interpreting scripture, you need to ask yourself, what does the author want us to believe? And then what does he want us to do? And if the author, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote and wanted us to clearly see that God chose us to be adopted into his family before the foundations of the world, before he said, let there be light, he chose us in him. Why does Paul want us to know that? Well, because of the response of my sisters. He says it, to the praise of his glorious grace, that we would respond to the free gift of the grace of God with praise to his glory. Now, I know many of you are probably struggling and wrestling with this right now because I've been there and I have struggled and I have wrestled with this idea myself. And this is a difficult thing to wrestle through and pro process through. And you're thinking, well, man, but how could God be just if, if this and this and all the trickles that come down from this verse and this conversation? And if you're wrestling, I want to encourage you to spend a little time this week on your free time in Romans chapter 9 and in John chapter 6, recognizing that there is a handshake. But what about, Pastor Stephen, what about all the whosoever wills? Yeah, it's absolutely true. Whosoever will come to the Lord will be saved. Whosoever will call on the name of Jesus will be saved. And we wrestle with all the, 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 the practical, functional implications of this. Well, but, but if this, then how this? And what we like to do as modern Westerners is go, well, this is the one that's true, not this one. 
And this is not a struggle that ancient Easterners had. It was, it was common in ancient Eastern literature to have two seemingly paradoxical philosophies and ideologies presented that we lived in the tension between the two. And the beautiful wisdom of God in this is that living in the tension between these two ideas that, yeah, God chooses, yet I also will to come to him. God calls us, but I also have human responsibility. That, but how can both of those make sense? They don't work together. I, you've heard many times I've got two little girls. Joey is three years old. About a month ago, we were in her room getting ready one day, and I was helping her get dressed, and I picked an outfit for her. It was super cute. She puts it on. Uh, well, I help her get it on, and then it comes time to pick out the shoes. And so I pick out the shoes that work with her outfit, and I, put them, I give them to her, and she goes, I don't want those. And I'm like, why? She's like, they don't match. And I'm like, okay, first of all, how do you know the concept of matching? I'm assuming that mom taught it to you one day when I wasn't here because you probably wanted to wear some heinous, out, like heinous, hideous, not matching, comical outfit. And mom was trying to help you understand because you were like, no, I want to wear my llama slippers. And mom was like, your llama slippers don't match. See, matching. And so she understands the, the element of this concept of matching clothes. But then that day, I'm sitting there trying to give her shoes that match, and according to her understanding of matching, she says, my clothes are pink and those shoes are blue. They don't match. And I'm going, well, actually, your clothes are pink and blue and yellow and white, and there's pink and blue in these shoes. They do match. And I think in this subject, a lot of times we go, uh, the choosing of God and the free will of men, they don't match. And I think God's going, actually, you just don't truly understand the levels that I do of the way that it does match. The secret things belong to God. It says Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29. And this is where we have to go. The word of God declares both to be true. And we need to not sacrifice one biblical truth for one that we like more. And we need to go, maybe God's smarter than me. Right? And acknowledge that scripture teaches both to be true and somehow we're my little Jojo going, these don't match and maybe they do match and we just need to go, you know what? I don't understand it. I don't get it. The secret things belong to God. Thank you for adopting me. And I want to go around and tell everyone else in the orphanage about this good father and see if they would come to faith in him as well. Um, if you like reading novels, there is a wonderful a fictional novel called Echo Island by one of my favorite authors named Jared C. Wilson. He, it's the only fictional work that he's ever written, and it is a beautiful, beautiful story um, that, that brings, sheds some light to the tension of these truths. So if you like reading fiction, uh, get yourself a copy of Echo Island, and it helps sort through some of these things in a way that I think is pretty brilliant. My wife Katie and I were going through it together, and there were several times we'd be reading, and we're like, ah, ha, ha. I see what he's doing here is uh, brilliant. So anyways, what does the author want us to believe? The author wants us to believe that our, our, our grip on, or that God's grip on us is, is stronger than our grip on him. And he also wants us to believe that we don't have to be working for salvation, as we'll see this theme continue on in chapter two, that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. That's what he wants us to believe. So that, what does the author want us to do? That we would live to the praise of his glorious grace, 
that we would live trusting in his grace, not in our works, and that we would rest, and when we stumble, that we haven't fallen away from God, that he's still welcoming us back, just like the father to the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. See, when you have received the free gift of God's grace and being chosen by God, the only reasonable response is the praise of his glorious grace. As we continue on reading, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Remember the Gnostic secret knowledge? The mysterious secret knowledge. They had the passwords to get through the levels of heaven. According to the mystery of his will, Paul is using these words on purpose. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So to those who are being told there's evil material and good spirit, Paul is saying, no, listen, this is all the plan of God. That before the foundations of the world, he chose us in him to the praise of his glorious grace according to the purpose of his will that at the fullness of time, he would redeem all things, all creation back to himself. So to those who are going, man, this world is evil. The God who made this world must be evil. God is saying, no, this world is evil because of sin and watch me redeem it to myself in my son, Christ Jesus. Amen to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on on earth, this reconciliation of all things back to God. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there it is again, according to the purpose, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So remember, he's talking to these people who have ideas of secret knowledge, and he talks about the mystery is revealed in Christ. What's the true mystery? The true mystery is that God had a plan all along. Before the foundations of the world to reconcile his creation back unto himself to the praise of his glory. And then we get to this interesting wording about sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. How do we know that these things that we see in Scripture are true? Because the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. When you've been saved, when you've come to saving faith, the Holy Spirit inside of you says, this is true. You don't need someone else to tell you or convince you. The Holy Spirit is going, this stuff is true and you know it. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The symbolism there is the signet ring of rulers, how they would seal things, seal letters with that ring. And it was an authoritative promissory note from those who would seal it. And so sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Again, what is this phrase that we've seen three times in the opening chapter here? 
In verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 12, to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, to the praise of his glory. To the Gnostic, Paul is saying, there is no spiritual mystery secret that you can figure out and find out. The truth is, God had a plan before he even said, let there be light. And he's been bringing that plan to pass according to the counsel of his will to the praise of his glory so that we could step back and look at what God has done and go, whoa, whoa, God, this world that fell in sin, you had a master plan to redeem it to yourself and to redeem a people to yourself that we might live to the praise of his glory. See, God's plan before the foundation of the world was to redeem mankind and all his creation back unto himself that we might live for his glory. As we get further into the book of Ephesians, this is the truth that we see, the truth that the word of God declares to us is that God is over all things and he's in all things and he's working out his plan as it pertains to this world and as it pertains to us in this world. But the story is his, not ours. And we are part of his story. And the Bible's not about us, it's about him. And there are implications on our life from the Bible, but it's ultimately God's story that we get to be a part of. Why? To the praise of his glory that we would live to give glory to God. Lord, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, through the teaching of your word, that you would grant illumination, that you would open eyes to the truth. If there's anyone here in this room or anyone online who is watching or listening that is not in right relationship with you, that has maybe bought into error or deception or ideologies of this world, that you would remove the deception and that by your Holy Spirit you would do the work that only you can do, that you would draw people unto yourself, that you would open their eyes to see their need for Christ, that you would open their eyes to see the eternal value and worth and beauty and majesty of Christ and to hear the good Father saying, I'm adopting you. And that you would help people have their eyes open today to you calling them to yourself. And that the response would be to the praise of your glory and your glorious grace. That we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. That we have no room to boast, but to simply rejoice in your grace and give praise to your glory. God, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would give all of us deep conviction in the truth from your word, that we would subject ourselves to your word, and that we would accept and receive the truth and walk in it and stand fast in it when the world would try and convince us otherwise. In Jesus' name, amen.